Certainly chapters 4 and 5 go together, but I'm just going to do chapter 4 tonight. Lord willing, we'll do chapter 5 next week. So chapter 4, I'll read the entire chapter. A surprising salvation. We'll begin reading at verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heresheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the son of uh, Heber the Kenite, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zaniam, which is beside Kedesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went out down, went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you, and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. Then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera, dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. 
And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Amen. Well, in the book of Judges, Yahweh uses many different types of people to bring his salvation. But he also used, uses different weapons, and he does so to demonstrate that he is the one who brings about this salvation. We saw the dagger from the Benjamite Ehud. We saw the ox goad from possibly the Canaanite Shamgar. And today we see the hammer that comes from Jael, the Kenite. We see that God is bringing his so great salvation for this people. And it, he does so in a surprising and once again mysterious way. And the reason he does this is to remind the people of God, to remind Israel and to remind us that salvation comes from the Lord. Remember, that's the main point of the book of Judges. Certainly, it's all about the canonization of Israel, the decline of Israel, as Israel becomes more and more like the nations around them. But that's juxtaposed, that's coupled with Yahweh's salvation for such an undeserving people. And remember, Israel was in that covenant with Yahweh based upon uh, what we see in the book of Deuteronomy, that Mosaic covenant, a covenant of works concerning life in the land. Joshua was that positive entrance. Judges is a very negative portrayal of that life in the land. Yet nonetheless, we see that Yahweh is good. Yahweh is kind and Yahweh does bring about a great salvation, but he does so in a surprising way. And when he does so in the surprising way, it is a bit of an indictment against Israel. It's a bit of a challenge against the people of Israel. And certainly we'll see that as we go through. Now, just a reminder, we're in the main section of the book of Judges. We see these cycles, sod, sin, oppression, deliverance. We see that Israel engages in wickedness. They are oppressed. They cry out in pain, and God is kind to deliver them. And he raises up deliverers for them to bring about that salvation. So the main body is chapter 3 to chapter 16. Last time we saw the uh, the uh, the introduction or I guess the the specific men that we start with we saw the model judge Othniel we saw the mire with Ehud and then we saw the mystery uh, with this one named Shamgar and his ox goat and tonight again we see the surprising salvation that comes by way of the judge Barak and the problem that we see in chapter four is the problem of incompetent leaders when it comes to the things of God I'm not talking about Deborah, and I'm not talking about Barak. I'm talking about the priesthood. Even though the priesthood is not mentioned here, there's a subtle reference to them. There's a subtle reference to their laziness as the people of God have to go up to Deborah and to talk to her and inquire with her about what the Lord has for them. Remember, the priesthood was supposed to teach the people. The priesthood was supposed to be the voice of the Lord to the people at this time, yet Israel keeps degenerating into sin. Yes, there was no king in Israel. Yes, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, but the priesthood was to keep people in check. The priesthood was to remind the people and teach the people concerning the things of God. And so as the canonization continues, the priesthood is nowhere to be found. And yet Yahweh is still pleased to bring about salvation for a wretched people who are really not seeking him. And even the people are not using the means uh, uh, in which to seek him. And the leaders 
are not providing any guidance in any sort of way. So the Lord raises up men, raises up people to bring about that salvation. And so in Judges 4, the Lord brings a smashing yet surprising salvation. That's what Davis calls this section, the Lord's smashing salvation. It is a smashing salvation, but it is also a surprising salvation to show forth that it is Yahweh who is the one who does bring salvation for his people. So we'll look at this surprising salvation, this smashing salvation, under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a surprising speaker in verses 1 through 11. Then we'll see a surprising salvation in verses 12 through 24. So a surprising speaker, verses 1 through 11. Then we will see a surprising salvation, verses 12 through 24. And as you read the book of Judges, you can never say the word of God is boring. I know we're tired. I know we're weary. But as you read the story of Deborah, read the story of Barak and Jael and Sisera, I mean, you should be thrilled with what's going on as we see God bring salvation. And so we'll first look at a surprising speaker in verses 1 through 11. And what's so surprising is that we see the voice of a woman in verses 1 through 8. But before we get to Deborah, we do see Israel's unsurprising wickedness. We've been warned, we've been told, uh, we've seen the summary uh, of the entire book in chapter 2. Israel's going to engage in sin. Israel's going to engage in wickedness. And so what happens? After Ehud, we saw Ehud, the Benjamite, that, that Navy SEAL sort of man, the one who was ambidextrous. The one who could fight with both hands. That's what it means when he was a left-handed man. It means his right hand was was bound so that he had to use his left. And so he is a formidable foe and a formidable warrior. And he guts guts Eglon, bringing salvation for the people of God. And so uh, he brings rest. He brings rest for 80 years. People seem to be doing okay. There seems to be some restraint. But after Ehud dies, all restraint uh, is broken. Verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The restraint is lifted. The true character is revealed. I do believe there does need to be some external restraint, especially as it pertains to the civil sphere. That is one of the purposes of the law of God in the civil sphere. Uh, sphere. It is to restrain sin. So people think externally that they might not do something. If there is no restraint, if there is no concern, then people are more willing uh, to let, uh, let their sins be seen by others. We're seeing that today. Restraint is being let loose and people have no problem engaging in sin in front of other people. And usually what happens is if we, uh, when restraint is lifted, true character is revealed. And so we see the desires of their heart. They continue. Okay, things are good under here. And he's keeping them in line. But we see that the people of God do not continue in the things of God when there is no one to keep them in line. That's why the people of God must be faithful to the end. That's why there are those commands for the people of God to persevere to the end. That's why it's important to understand the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It is God who keeps us to the end. God is the one who preserves us until the end. But we must recognize that genuine faith, as Davis says, is demonstrated in a consistent life. A faithful life. Not saying we don't have problems and issues and sins, 
but we uh, we're more um, we see that uh, God is working. We see faithfulness in the daily round rather than in specific experiences. And so Israel had that problem as well. They wanted experience. They wanted certain things. And when restraint was lifted, we see that they are not consistent or faithful in any sort of way. So they continue in their sin. They continue in their evil. And Yahweh once again punishes them. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. He delivers them. He sells them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Perisheth, Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So Jabin is formidable. Sisera is formidable. But he is also harsh. The people continue to do wickedness, and yet uh, the, uh, Yahweh delivers them, and yet the people just do wickedness again, and so Yahweh delivers them to a harsher reality. And again, it's 20 years. It is a long time. We must appreciate the sorrow that they are going through. We must appreciate and understand that they're going through great pain. Yes, of their own doing, but it makes the you know, killing of Sisera by jail all the more understandable. There is an enemy of the Lord, this one Sisera, who is a formidable foe, who is a wicked man, who is a wicked tyrant, who is a wicked oppressor. And yes, he is used as an instrument to judge the people of God, but yet God still brings down those arrogant tyrants as well. But for now, Jabin oppresses. He's formidable. He's got his chariots. Uh, he's got, you know, the, the te- modern technology of that time to be able to use. He's got, you know, formidable uh, war, uh, tools for warfare. So he is a formidable sort of foe. And what's interesting and, and important to note as well, location is important. We seem to be moving from location to location. Othniel's of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Ehud is of the tribe of Benjamin. We're now we're going moving into the north. Benjamin, Judah, and the south. Now we're moving into the north near Ephraim, Naphtali, and Zebulon. We're now in the northern part of Israel. Hazor's in the northern part of Israel. So we see issues abound in differing parts of the nation of Israel. And again, at the beginning there was some unity, but as we move towards the end of the book and what's recorded at the end of the book, we see a civil war that happens. But we do see different issues arise. And perhaps some nation or some tribes received the brunt of that oppression. And so the north would see, receive the brunt of that oppression. And so they have this unsurprising wickedness. And God, unsurprisingly, according to his word, sends them and sells them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. And then in verses 4 through 9, but specifically verses 4 through 7, we see Yahweh raise up a deliverer. And this is where we see that surprising mouthpiece. And this is where we see the importance of Deborah. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mounts of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for the judgment. One thing it's important to point out, she is the prophetess. That is her role. She is not the judge in the way that we see throughout the rest of the book. In Judges chapter 2, we see that judges are raised up for what purpose? To deliver 
the people of God. What we have in verses 4 through 9 is more of an extended exposition, an extended explanation of how the Lord raised up a deliverer. And the Lord raised up a deliverer through the one who speaks on behalf of the Lord. So we're not against Deborah being a prophetess. She's the one who speaks upon the ha- on the, on behalf of the Lord, but she is not the judge in the way that we see with the other judges in the book. Barak is the judge. Barak is the one who is raised up. Barak is the one who is included in other lists, not Deborah. And the word judge here can carry the idea of govern and lead, and certainly she was doing that, but she was doing that not in a civil sense. She was doing that in a religious sense. She was the one who was speaking on behalf of the Lord. She was the one who was speaking concerning the things of God and speaking regarding what the people of God ought to do as it pertains to worship. She is not the judge, but she is the prophetess, and Barak is the judge who is raised up. And so she deliberates regarding the, uh, deliberates regarding the things of God. Henry sums it up well. She judged not as a princess by a civil authority conferred upon her, but as a prophetess and as God's mouth to them, correcting abuses and redressing grievances, especially those which related to the worship of God. The children of Israel came up to her from all parts for judgment, not so much for the deciding of controversies between man and man as for advice uh, in their, as for advice in the reformation of what was amiss in things pertaining to God. Those among them who before had secretly lamented the impieties and idolatries of their neighbors, but knew not where to apply for the restraining of them, now made their complaints to Deborah, who, by the sword of the Spirit, showing them the judgment of God, reduced and reclaimed many, and excited and animated the magistrates in their respective districts to put the laws into execution." So she is the prophetess. She's speaking on behalf of the Lord pertaining to the things of God. She is judging, but not in the way that we see with the uh, judges who are raised up. And so notice as well the place of deliberation. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. Where was Israel supposed to go for worship? Where was Israel supposed to go to inquire of the Lord? The place that Yahweh had chose. They were supposed to go at this time to Shiloh. That's why the silence of the priesthood is deafening. That's why the silence of the priesthood is terrible. That's why the silence of the priesthood and the people going to Deborah instead is an indictment against the priesthood. They were the ones, again, who were supposed to be leading the people. They were the ones who were supposed to be teaching. They were the ones who were supposed to be guiding. But now a woman speaks instead of them. And brethren, prophetesses in the Bible are super duper rare. There's like what? Anna, there's Miriam, there's a few others. But they're very rare when it comes to scripture. And so the fact is that we have a woman as the prophet doesn't say so. It doesn't speak so much about her, but it speaks about the men. It says something about the men. It says something about the priesthood. It says something about the situation in Israel that there are no solid spiritual leaders who are present at that time. 
Now, this is not a proof text for why women should be pastors, right? Or how Deborah is subverting the patriarchy. That's not what this text is about. We must appreciate that she does right by the Lord, and it does show how feckless and faithless the priesthood had become. They had stopped engaging in their role. Now here comes a woman who's engaging in that role when they should have been engaging in it. And again, if there are no good pastors, it doesn't mean we have women be pastors. But nonetheless, again, it shows the problem and it is a certain caution for all men. It's a caution for pastors. It's a caution for all men. It's a caution against being feckless in general when it comes to the things of God. It's important for men to pray. Isn't this why Paul says that in 1 Timothy chapter 2? What does he say to the men? I pray that, oh, I, I urge that all men pray. I'm not saying I, women cannot pray, but men, please pray. <laughs> Please open your mouths. Please pray. You need to be the ones leading the people when it comes to things like corporate prayer. You need to be the ones who are leading your families when it comes to the things of God. There's a lot of encouraging things. You know, we need to, you know, deal with the people, the men who are feckless and the men who are not being the spiritual leaders in their homes. We need to deal with that. But I also want to encourage. There's a lot of good young men in our church. There's a lot of good men in our church who understand the importance of being the strong spiritual leader in the household, the provider, the protector, and the one who provides by way of of leadership when it comes to spiritual things. I mean, men who are serious about the things of God, men who aren't big babies who get easily offended by things, men who would demonstrate to their children the importance of the things of God. We don't want a wussified church. We don't want a sissified church, right? We want women to be part of the church. Churches for men and women. But the modern church is very feminized. Why is it there are not a lot of men in those churches? Because it's feminized. They don't want to talk about, you know, they come to judge and talk about how Deborah, look at her, she could be a pastor. Rather than pointing out that salvation is of the Lord. Rather than pointing out and recognizing that Barak is actually the judge and not so much. Uh, Deborah. And so there is an indictment silently against the, the priesthood when the people of Israel have to go to her, not at Shiloh, but at a different place. And so they go to her. And I think verse five, I think helps summarize or the way it should be translated. The end of verse five helps, I think, defend the view that she is the prophetess and not the judge. And the children of Israel came up to her for the judgment, is how it should be translated. For the judgment. They're under oppression. What do we do? They're under oppression. How shall we be saved? And that's exactly the answer that we receive. We receive the answer in verse 6. We see that it comes from Barak, or Barak, or however you want to say that. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, She is the mouthpiece, speaking on behalf of the Lord. Here is the deliverer who will be that one. Again, she is not the deliverer. There's a, uh, Daniel Block raises a lot of good questions about if she was the actual judge, like the other judges, there were other things that would have happened, but she is not the one 
who brings deliverance, but she speaks on behalf of God to the one who would deliver. And that is Barak. And said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun against you. And I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. So God promises deliverance. God promises salvation. And notice, into your hand, Barak. Again, pointing out that he is the one who brings deliverance. Yahweh is going to do it, but he's going to deliver Sisera into your hands. And later on, in 1 Samuel 12, Barak is mentioned again, alongside the other judges. Not Deborah, but Barak is the one who is mentioned. So he is the deliverer. And so then we see in verse 8, the faith of Barak. I don't think Barak is being weak here. Ink is spilt. There's differing views. Some say he's being feckless. Some say he is, um, uh, he's not taking hold of his leadership role. But others, and I think they are right, highlight that he wants the presence of the Lord to be with him. He wants the mouthpiece of the Lord to go with him. And so it is not a weak confession. It is a strong confession. Verse 8, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. He won't go unless the Lord goes with him. He will not go unless the Lord, the prophetess of the Lord, shall go and speak. Brethren, this, I think, is a confession of faith. And what's interesting, the people who take the view that he's being feckless, and I quote, they said in the commentator, I don't know why he's in Hebrews chapter 11. Because, brethren, Barak is in Hebrews chapter 11. When we talk about the men of faith in the Old Testament, remember the writer of the Hebrews says, what, what can I say? We don't have time, basically, to talk about Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets. But Barak is mentioned there, isn't he? He is actually a man of faith. And if you read it in that way, a lot of the things he does are positive. He's actually portrayed in a very positive light. He's the deliverer. He wants the Lord to go with him. And at a time where the people of Israel are not heeding the word of God, here is one who actually wants the word of God. Here's the one who actually wants to heed what the Lord says and wants the presence of the Lord to be with him. Henry says, some make this to be the language of a weak faith. He could not take her word unless he had her with him in pawn, as it were, for performance. It seems rather to arise from a conviction of the necessity of God's presence and continual direction, a pledge in earnest of which he would reckon Deborah's presence to be, and therefore begged thus earnestly for it. If thou go not up with me in token of God's going with me, carry me not up hence. Nothing would be a greater satisfaction to him than to have the prophetess with him, to animate the soldiers, and to be consulted as an oracle upon all occasions. So I do think, in light of Hebrews 11, in light of how he's portrayed, really, in in Judges 4 and 5, I do think it is a confession of faith. I want the mouthpiece of the Lord to go with me. I want the presence of the Lord to go with me into battle. 
And so she affirms this. She assures this. Yahweh, will, I will go with you. But there's also the promise that salvation is going to come from the Lord. Salvation, God is the glory, ultimately, yes, the, the Cicero will be delivered into the hands of Barak, but the glory shall go to another. That is, the glory shall go to Yahweh by way of somebody else. And again, there's no record of Barak griping at this. How could this be? Why could it? No, he's portrayed very positively throughout this chapter. If you read it, at least the way that I am reading it. Now, we might expect salvation to come from Deborah. Uh, in the, uh, might say expect salvation to come from her if you were reading it for the first time. But we know later on that is not the case. So God will go with him, but the glory is going to be to God by way of a surprising uh, person who will bring that salvation, namely the hand of a woman. You don't expect women to be prophetesses and you don't expect women to be the ones driving tent pegs to the heads of God's enemies. That was a big spoiler. But anyway, back to verse 9. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. So they were going up to battle. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He's calling them. He's rallying the troops. He goes up with 10,000 under his command. And Deborah went up with him. So there's this promise of deliverance, this promise of victory that comes from a woman. But then we have this unexpected information in verse 11. It just kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? You're reading along. Here's Deborah. Here's Barak. Here's God raising up a judge. Then all of a sudden, verse 11, Now Heber the Kenite, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanayim, which is beside Kedesh. Why do we need that information? Why do we need the information of verse 11? Well, again, spoiler alert, it highlights the providence of God as he brings his salvation. You see, the Kenites, according to Judges chapter 1, dwelt in the south. Where is the battle going to happen? It's going to happen in the north. And unexpectedly, here are some Kenites dwelling in the north. See, once again, throughout this chapter... And throughout the entire book and throughout the entire Bible, salvation comes from whom? Who is the source of our salvation? It is God. It is Yahweh. And we see him do it by way of his providence. So that's why that information is included there. Now, I think one thing we can take away from chapter 4, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 11 I always struggle sometimes. What, what's the application? What should we draw out? What's the, what do the people of God need to know? I think in light of the issues going on with the priesthood, I think in light of Barak's desire to hear the word of the Lord, I think the application for us to recognize and appreciate is that we have a God who speaks. That we have a God who speaks to us, and we, his people, need to listen. God has spoken God has laid down where salvation lies. God has laid down what it means to live as the new covenant people. He has laid forth how we ought to live. And we ought to listen to him. We ought to take him at his word. Again, that's one of the problems in Israel throughout their entire history. The failure of the leadership. They did not take God at his word. They did not trust the old covenant promises, did they? 
God said if they did what was right, they would receive good things. If they obeyed him, they would receive blessing, but they do not do that. And so God keeps his word. They do wickedness. They engage in uh, idolatry. And God is the one who sends them into captivity. As we saw in Hosea 8, I gave them the law. I wrote it down, but they considered it a strange thing. Well, here, it's a strange thing that a prophetess is the one who is speaking on behalf of the Lord when there should be priests who are the ones who are speaking on behalf of the Lord. So we ought to appreciate the promise of God. According to the new covenant, there's the promise of his presence. He is with us by the spirit. He dwells with us. He speaks to us. Uh, So if that is true, we ought to lay hold of that. We ought to lay hold of that, especially again, going back to the men. Again, this is a bit of an indictment, this whole thing against men. Barak is pretty good. I like Barak in this whole thing, but Overall, the men in Israel, where are the men? Where can they be found? We need men who read the word of God. We need men who love the Lord's day and show their children what it means to gather. I'm always, really, I'm not perplexed. It always baffles me that people don't see, why are my children not coming to church? Why don't they want to you know, engage in the things of God? Yes, God saves them. But how did you model it? How did you model the things of God throughout your life? Did they see you pray? Did they see you read your Bible? Did they see that you thought church was important so you schlepped them all to church every Lord's Day? Or were other other things take priority? If other things take priority, don't be surprised if children follow suit with you and not take things seriously. So men need to pray. Men need to lead their children. Men need to try and read and understand and If you don't understand what you say, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Lord, help me. That's what we need to say. We sometimes have these egos. Now, we always have these egos, right? We're all filled with egos. We either blame people or we shame ourselves. I'm sorry, I'm terrible. Just own it. I don't know as much as I should. Okay, seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Press on. Seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ and press on. We have to set our egos aside and take God out of his word, because he does speak, he is with us, and he'll give us the strength that we need. And so that is a surprising speaker, verses 1 to 11. Let's then look at a surprising salvation, verses 12 through 24. So we do see the Lord's deliverance for Barak in verses 12 through 16. We see the occasion, verses 12 and 13. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then we see there's perhaps a chiasm. That is, there's bookending driving to a center. So the center of this uh, section is probably verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Again, whose salvation is it? The Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. He's delivering by way of Barak, and he's delivering by way of Jael as well. Has not the Lord gone before you? The Lord fights for Barak. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. 
The Lord had promised, the Lord had said, and the Lord has delivered as well. He goes and he takes God at his word. He has the presence of the Lord and the Lord is with him. And so this oppressive, cruel tyrant is removed. Sisera, the commander, Sisera, the the, the wicked taskmaster is, uh, is routed and he flees. He runs. And we see that in verse 15. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. So the Lord fights, the Lord brings deliverance, the Lord routes. And again, we see the Lord's providence in salvation where the battle is. What river is mentioned twice? River Kishon, verse 7. River Kishon, verse 13. And in chapter 5, verse 21, the torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, Oh, my soul, march on in strength. God, by way of his providence, by way of using the swelling up of the river, by using a great storm, has incapacitated the chariots. He has taken their strength and he's utterly removed them. He is doing that by way of his providence to show that it is his salvation. Again, God is bringing salvation for the people, but we see his providence in all of it, even in bringing the rain and a torrential downpour to have the river Kishon overflow, so much so that the chariots get stuck in the mud. And so Sisera has to get off his chariot, he has to flee, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harisheth and Goyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. So Barak brings deliverance, the Lord brings deliverance, but also the Lord brings deliverance through jail, verses 17 through 24. It is so surprising, isn't it? If you're reading it for the first time, you should be on the edge of your seat. Again, you can't say the Bible is boring. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of jail, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Oh, that's why verse 11 is there. That's why that is included. Oh, because here's Heber with his wife. They're right where the battle is. And here comes Sisera, who's in need of aid. Oh, and notice, there's peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. They seem to be friendly. They seem to be friends. They see, there seems to be some sort of peace between them. And it starts off that way. There seems to be hospitality, verse 18. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. She provides a warm blanket out of the torrential downpour. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. But she does one better. She gives him milk, opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink, and she covered him. And then verse 20, and said to her, he said to her, she prov- she'll, he says to her, can you provide me some protection? Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say no. And then the surprising twist happens in verse 21. Then Jael, Heber's wife, takes a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. I love the Lord's ways of salvation. 
I love the ox goads and the daggers and the jawbones. I love all those sorts of things. And we see her, in, takes them in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. I mean, the, the author spares no detail. I mean, he spares, no, there it is, it just right through. He was weary, he was tired, boom! Tent peg right through his temple, right through his head, and the tyrant of Israel is taken away. He was fast asleep, he is weary, he dies because of jail. That is a surprise. They're supposed to be at peace. There's this Kenite all of a sudden in the north when they're usually in the south. And there's a torrential downpour, and yet Yahweh shows and brings his salvation for his people, and he does so to show his glory. And the confirmation, uh, uh, the, the, the death of Jeb, Sisera is affirmed in verse 22. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. It is Yahweh who saves. It is the Lord's method here of salvation to make the enemies of his people his footstool. You see, dear brethren, Jael's brutal and violent killing is not condemned. In fact, it's praised in chapter 5. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water. She gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer, and she pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. And at her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet he sank. He fell. And where he sank, there he fell dead. The Lord brought salvation to them. It is how he is glorified in this. It shows that he is the one to do it. Because if you were engaging in warfare at that time, you never think it would be a lady with a tent peg and a hammer to deliver God's people. And again, she is not condemned for what she does. We must remember as well, there are things recounted in Scripture and things recommended in Scripture. I don't think you go grab a tent peg and a hammer and drive it through your enemy's head. That's not what we do. However, nonetheless, it highlights God's great salvation. There are things recounted and things recommended. And what is recounted here is the salvation that Yahweh brings. Yahweh is not some soft old man in the sky. That's how people paint God today, right? Some soft old man. All the pictures of Jesus, which violate the second commandment, all make him soft and prissy looking, do they not? But that is not our Lord according to scripture. He is the one who makes war. He is the one who judges in righteousness. He is the one who makes his enemies his Footstool. Davis says the strength of Israel is not the soft, wimpy, graven image of current Western imagination. The only real hope of God's afflicted people is in a strong Lord who in righteousness judges and makes war. And we see that in verses 23 and 24. On that day, a summary of all that has happened. God subdued. 
God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. God subdued. God brought that salvation. God strengthened Israel, and he did so to show that it is the salvation he brings. And so, what is the response to God's so great salvation? Praise. And that's what we'll see next week in, De- uh, in Judges. I was going to say Deborah chapter 5. Judges uh, chapter 5. But again, the whole point of this section, the whole point of the book, and the thing we take away is it is God who saves. Brethren, never forget that. God is the one who saves. He does so through means. He does so through a deliverer. He does so through the accomplishment of the Son, the one who came at the appointed time, who was born of a woman, the one who needed to be obedient, the one who needed to be bruised, the one who needed to crush, the one who needed to be a propitiation. I mean, all the issues, all the problems that we had before God, Christ takes them away. Think about all that Christ is upon the cross. We have sins, they are expiated. There is God's wrath, he is propitiated. We have, been, we have enmity with God. We are reconciled to God. All the language that we see in Scripture, it's what God does for us. We were in slavery to sin. We are now redeemed. It's what Jesus does for us. What we have in Jesus and even the salvation found in Jesus was surprising. The disciples struggled with it. When Jesus prophesied and said, I'm going to die. Three days I'll be buried and the third day I'll rise again. What did Peter say? May it never be. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. People struggle with that. People struggle with a champion who dies. I mean, it is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet it shows that it is God who saves. Even the one crucified on a Roman implement of torture, it's how God brings salvation for people. It is mysterious and it it is surprising and it shows that he is the one who brings it. But also as we think of God's salvation as he applies it. Christ is accomplished and the Spirit applies it. The Spirit applies it to our hearts and lives. And what God does in the order of salvation, doctrinally remains the same for all of us, right? We've been given a new heart. We've been given the gifts of repentance and faith. And as we believe, we are justified and adopted and being sanctified and we are persevering and will be glorified. That is all true. But the way in which God does that by way of providence differs, doesn't it? And it is so very unexpected. And when we consider our former ways, how surprising is it that God saved wretched people and gives us salvation? Think of Paul. Will he still breathe threats? Think of the Ethiopian eunuch who was excluded according to the terms of the Old Covenant. Think of Jael and her hammer, the way in which God brought that salvation. Think of you and me. We were not searching for God. We were not longing for God. We were not hoping for God. Yet God saved us. And he does so providence. A friend telling us about Christ or inviting us to church or perhaps just starting to read your Bible or any other sort of means. God does so. God brings that salvation. He does so in such unexpected ways. And what the writer wants us to see is that surprising and smashing salvation. That's what Judges 4 wants to teach us. 
that it is Yahweh who saves, and he does so in surprising ways to show forth he brings it and not we ourselves. Let us remember that, dear brother. Let us remember Yahweh saves. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the salvation you bring to your people. And thank you that as we learn in Scripture and as we see it in the Old Testament, as we read of it in the New, as we experience it in our lives, and as we see it in others, we know that it is you who does save. We know that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive. We know that we were once alienated from you. We were once at enmity with you. The carnal mind cannot submit to you, and that's why we needed you to save us. And so we are thankful for Christ Jesus. Thank you for what he did. And we are thankful for the spirit who applies what he did to us. And we pray that we would take you at your word. That we would trust in your ways. That as we have been saved and redeemed, that we would trust and know that we are justified in your sight. That we have a righteousness not our own. That we are not guilty before you. But also help us to know that you do sanctify us. That you've given us a new heart. That we can honor you and glorify you, albeit not perfectly, but we can by your spirit. And so may we take you at your word. Please forgive us for being failures when it comes to spiritual things, especially the men. Please forgive us for not leading our families. Please forgive us for not being good examples to others. Please forgive us for not being good examples to our families. And we pray, O Lord, that you would raise up good men. Raise up men to be deacons and elders in our church. But raise up, uh, but just have men be regular Christians. Have men be faithful in these things. And we pray that you would do so. We pray that we would be strong. We pray that we would be uh, courageous in the things of God. And we know that we need your spirit to help us with this. So thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your encouragement. And thank you for your salvation. And we pray these things in the name.